This morning's reading is from John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may be glorify you. For you granted him authority all over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. They know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe that the name, by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the, word has, the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your tr word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you, and you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want, you to, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, that the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that, you, that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Word of the Lord. Amen. The kids are invited to Kids Church in the library. There's a... There's a classic sort of preaching line that uh, we don't follow as much as we should, but that the form of the text should inspire um, the message, the sermon. So, so if you think about um, a poem, a sermon that's based off of the Psalms, which is a poem, should it somehow have some poetic quality to it. 
Because what happens is, is as preachers, um, we take things so far apart, and as, as studiers of the Bible, we take things so far apart from the form in which they have in them. And what happens, and, and this is sort of a uh, something we, we get told a lot if you're reading texts and studying stuff, is that the form also carries some of the message, which is hard for us in the modern world. We think the message is just the message, but it's actually the form that contains some of it. And, and the reason why this should not necessarily be a shock to Christians is because Jesus comes in the form of humanity, and that carries some or a lot of the message with that case with it. It's not just what he has to say, but the fact that in his form, he becomes um, good news to us. He becomes the message in a way by becoming human. The form the form, and, and, and the message of what Jesus has to say are uniquely tied together, which is this amazingly interesting thing because God could have just spoke from heaven again, right? God could have just laid out these things and, and tried to make it clear and even offered a sacrifice in heaven if he wanted to. But God actually takes up residency in the world, which is this major theme of the Gospel of John. And so the form carries a lot of what this message is. So the hard part for today is that this is Jesus praying for us. In sermons, we often like to dissect the text and bring points out of it. Uh, have you ever tried to, to dissect a prayer before? Um, a prayer sort of stands in its wholeness. A prayer sort of stands in its completeness. Um, you can appreciate a prayer. You can, you can come to a prayer. You can hear a prayer. But if you start pulling out, oh, well, this says this and this says this, which we do with all the scripture, but, but there's something within it that needs to be contained in the fact that this is a prayer. Not only is it a prayer, it's a prayer that Christ offers for us. You know, every, it wasn't until we started doing the confession of faith with the idea that, that who can condemn only Christ, and it says that Christ prays for us in those words. And it was something that was, that was as I said it over and over again for the last couple of Sundays, uh, or for a while now, it's every Sunday that's a part where I pause, is that Christ prays for us. See, see it was easy for me to believe that like Christ uh, died for us, that Christ lived for us, that Christ does these one-time things for us because he is God, but that, that Christ offers prayer for us, Christ offers intercessions for us, is something that was more lost on me until we started saying that, and then it becomes deeply meaningful to you the more you hear it, is that Christ is one who also prays for us in our weakness, prays for us in our distress, prays for our strength and guidance. Christ is one who meets us in prayer. And one of the ways I think we can look at the ways in which Christ prays for us is looking at this prayer from the end of John 17. I mean, Jesus prays in sort of all the Gospels, and yet this one in John 17 is one of the longest, and it discloses a great deal of things. Now, if you're following along, what's interesting is we began this sort of Lent journey, this is the fifth Sunday, with this um, action, this foot-washing action. What I tried to say within that action, this is form and content again, within that action, that form and that story contains much of what Jesus wants to say to us. And it kind of had a two-pronged approach. The first was, is that it was his example of him laying down his life and picking it back up again. Him laying down his heavenly um, sort of realm and, and dying for us and picking it back up and then washing us and, and sort of forgiving us, that there was that level of it. But then it also became an ethical command for the disciples to go and to, to sort of do that as well, to be those who serve in that way. And that image 
fit most of what we talked about, or almost all of what we talked about in 14, 15, and 16, those chapters. And, and so what we tried to think is that 14, 15, and 16 were discourses on what he did in, verse, or in chapter 13, that foot washing scene. So he preaches and teaches what that sort of meaning was. It was sort of like this act, which is a symbol of the act. And in John's gospel, the act is the cross. Uh, in the other gospels, they, they sort of maybe push it a little bit towards the resurrection. But, but when Jesus says in this passage, my hour has come, he's clearly speaking about the cross, that, that he's going to go to the cross, that this is the hour of the glorification for him and the Father is at the cross which is an amazing sort of thing to think about, that, that the cross sort of fits that in John's gospel. I mean, certainly whenever we say cross, I think this is, this is something, cross should be shorthand for us for um, life, death, resurrection, and the often forgot ascension. Christ goes to the Father so that he can fill all things. And yet for John's gospel, it clearly sort of keeps alluding to the cross as the place in which that, that, that um, glory sort of happens. And his hour has come for that. And so John 13 was an image of that. And then he has discourses on what that means in 16, 17, uh, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, he sort of explains that. And one of the things that we started this with, and it comes up again in today's passage, is that these were with the ones whom Jesus loved. It's, it's hard for us to, to sort of get this sometimes, but that Christ called a people to him in the world that Christ called these people out whom he disclosed himself to in deeper ways and sort of what's happening in John at the end. In this passage, it says that I don't pray for the world, I don't pray for the cosmos, but I pray for those you've given me, which is a challenge for us is that can't he just pray for the world? Now in John, he loves the world, it says in John 3.16, and yet the world hates and has not received what God has done. What happens for the disciples is they become bearers of that message, right? They become those going out to the mission field of the world. Now, there's this, um, so I don't have, I can't see anything. Uh, so I, I, to jump, I have to, does anybody know this poem? Um, he was in, he was, here's a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in an ordinary uh, obscure village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never traveled except in his infancy more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of these things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was a still young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on this earth, his seamless robe. When he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave through the courtesy of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone. Today he's the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of all human progress. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of, the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary personality. Do people, have you guys heard that before? Yes, okay, great. So I didn't have to read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> 
That's why I did it fast. It's a very common thing. What I think is missing is that this part at the end of John's is what carried that meaning forth, right? And so you read that poem and it's like, it, it leaves this huge gap at the end of it. So this man died in obscurity, died with none of his friends. It, it doesn't even really quite reference the resurrection, which that's nitpicking. Um, but then it says that it's left, he's left this impact upon the earth. And what Christians really want to say, and this, this poem leaves it off for this short thing, is that through his body that he is still called out upon the earth, this message has gone forth. The churches, this called out ones, these ones he prays for, these ones who are sent as he is sent, become the bearers of that message. So what that, that sort of short thing nails is he dies in obscurity. The question is, is how after 19 centuries has this message left that type of impact upon the earth? And I think we find the answer to that question in John 17. Is that he's called out these people to be the bearers of that name and that mission forward. To continue to bring that to the world. To continue to bring that in process. See, that, that Jesus wed himself to the church, which is language we'll find in the epistles, that Jesus has given himself to the church, that Jesus is trying to radiate through the lives of these believers out into the world as a message that almost makes us, um, I think, shy. One, because it's hard to believe um, of the people gathered with us, but even ourselves as we gather for worship and church and to be the people called out. But to, but to know, um, G.K. Chesterton had this saying that, that we should carry two rocks in our hands. One is that I am but dust, and dust I shall return. And the other is for our sake the world was made. And to use them accordingly um, was the goal of wisdom, to know that when, when, you know, that for your sake the world was made, to pull that one out, to, to speak up, and that you are dust, uh, to remind yourself of humility was sort of the importance there. But what I think what happens with this is we only carry that like Christ is Lord of history. Christ is the one solitary life. And so it's all a miracle that he's worked it out throughout the world. And yet God's plan to work it out through the world and has been is through the church, through that continued witness of what he's done. And so he says in there that eternal life is this. Eternal life is to know God and to know the one whom he sent. Now, eternal life in John's gospel, we've talked about this, is not just um, getting to heaven when you die, but it's actually this way of finding our hiddenness in God already, becoming part of who God is, receiving the name, as he talks about in this passage, of knowing the name, of knowing the mission and the purpose, and the mission, the one that he has sent, right? And that's eternal life. And so then part of eternal life becomes, as he says later, is that I'm sending you. And so we talked about this when we went through the seven signs in John's gospel, the seven signs of these things in which we're always sort of healing something or disrupting something in the world, pointing to life where there was an absence of life, making more life in the midst of death. And yet Jesus was always adamant that, that making more life in the midst of death is the main mission here, and yet that is greater than just healing this one person or feeding this one group or this and that and the other. It's about this eternal plan and destiny which God, the Father, and Him and the Spirit have sort of pushed into the world, which is deeper than just you were sick and you got better. But this idea that God's main goal of new creation and the reconciliation of all things includes the, the distinguishment of death. 
that at some point and someday death would be no more, that at some point and someday the grave would be conquered, that at some point and someday the scarcity in which we feel now that we always need to get more water in the living water scene in John, um, that we always need to go get more bread, and yet this is bread that doesn't run out, that Jesus is always pointing to that there's something deeper beyond the screen in which you're looking. We look so immediate and so close to us in our concerns. And yet what Jesus is tucking these signs for, and, and signs, as we know, point to some reality beyond them. All signs uh, point to reality. Uh, the example I used before was a stop sign. points to a reality behind it, which is that you need to stop, and if you don't, you get a ticket. Um, they all point to realities behind them, that this is a society in which we stop so we don't have accidents, we all die. But Jesus' signs, too, point to that reality beyond, on the other side, that they point to this other world in which these things will no longer be, that there'll be more filling, that there'll be more fullness, that the grave uh, would be empty. And so we, as disciples, as, as his people, we join in that community called out by God. I'm praying for them, not the world, is what he says. There's something we're on the inside of that the world isn't yet on the inside of. And he says that this name that you have given me, I will give to them. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to sort of try and study this, is that there's two sort of main theories, and they seem to sort of run together. It's the first that the name that Jesus is giving the disciples is Father for God. In the Old Testament, God is called Father, but, but more um, seldomly and more as metaphor, I think. But Jesus, when he uses the word Father, I think nine times, I wrote it down somewhere, nine or seven times in this last passage, uh, 17, chapter 17, is he's disclosing to them that there's like a literal way in which God is Father. That his Son, one partnered with him, is sent into the world. So the name being opened up by Jesus and being handed on to the disciples is this one that we would know as Father as Abba, is the, is, the, is the word that he uses here. And it's interesting, it's the same one that begins the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. That there's something about the name in which he's opening up that's this relational space. And as we read further into the Gospels or further into the New Testament, it becomes clear that this is the name that by which we become children of God, become adopted into this household. God isn't just some outside abstract thing, but something working to bring us into the inside, which is amazing. This passage he has in there, he says that all I have is yours, which we can all say. All that's yours is mine is not something we can all say. And yet there's this passage in the prodigal son story, which many of us are familiar with, when the son comes back and he says to him, all I have is yours. We read that, and we often read ourselves into the son who's abandoned and left and gone off into the far country and squandered his money and wealth or his father's money and wealth on um, a life of ill repute, I think is, is one of the translations. Um, and yet he comes home, and the father's word to him, and again, we read into ourselves the son, that all I have is yours. I think at times... The church can be far too shy about the mission and what it's given in God. Eternal life is to hear this idea that from John's or from that story is that all I have is yours. 
that we now participate in the life of God. So Father's one. The other thing, the name that he's revealing is this name that has been the name since Moses. It's the name that Moses carried out into mission too, is that when Moses says, how will I go back to Pharaoh? Tell me the name of the one who is sending me. God says, it is I am, or I am that I am. Uh, Yahweh is the one who is sending you. That that's the one who is sending you out. And we talked about this when we did the Lord's Prayer series two years ago. I'm sure you all remember very specifically where I was standing when I said this. Um, uh, that the, that your, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, my, hallowed be thy name, so the name shows up there too, right? Um, and my preferred translation we talked about that Sunday is uphold the holiness of your name instead of hallowed be thy name. Um, because hallowed be thy name, one, we don't use hallowed as a word anymore, so that has, uh, we'd have to look it up. Um, we don't use it that often. Kim teaches Shakespeare, so she probably uses it sometimes. But other than that, um, most of us don't use it in, the, in a sentence. But uphold the holiness of your name. And we looked back into the Israel scriptures, and it even showed up a little bit in the psalm that Ray read this morning, is that the name goes out with power and peace in the presence of God. Where the name is known, God's, God's witness and mission in life is known. There's almost something about the name that builds the reality in the Old Testament that makes this clear. And so the name could be the name of Father, which ties into the name of I am that I am. But what's even more amazing is that Paul in Philippians 2 says that Jesus was given the name above all names um, and that he is the Lord, the Greek word Lord, uh, Kairos. And in the Greek Old Testament, the name Yahweh is translated with the same word. It's almost like that Jesus in this is becoming the one who bears that name as well. That in this moment of glorification, in this moment of growing across, in this hour, he's bearing that name too. So the name he gives us is, and, and David's talked about this a couple of times if you were here for his sermons, that I am is a statement that shows up in John too. Seven times with I am other things and seven times just I am. It often comes with power. And so Jesus is the one bearing this name out in the world, which brings us to beautiful phrases like this, which is Jesus is God's autobiography told for the world. To think about that when Jesus comes to the world, he's revealing God as if God were writing his own story before us. It's a powerful thing that Jesus witnesses in this way to the name. And the name and the Father and him become one in such a way that they're mutually indwelling and mutually filling. And, as this passage ends, that we're invited into that space. That your love may be in them and that I may be in them is the goal of this mission. In the... the what I, there's so many... My like phone is showing the slides today, so it's, which order do we want to do this? Yes, normally I jump. The world, we'll talk about the world again. This is, this is the image that I prefer for sometimes the Christian life is that we are rooted in the earth into what God wants to do. And so we pray things like, uh, in earth as it is in heaven, right? And what John, John Jesus does in this passage is he kind of inverts it is he says that they are still going to be in the world. See, we're still the plant above the surface here in this analogy. 
uh, I hope it's still working. Uh, this analogy is we're the plant above the surface, right? And what Jesus says is they're going to remain in the world, but they belong to heaven. Their citizenship, as, as Paul will say, is in heaven, that they, they're sort of rooted someplace else. This is the abiding that he talks about in the previous passage, is that, is that I often think, you know, we root into the earth and that's where God wants to do his work, and that's true. But sometimes it seems like God is doing his work because our rootedness in another place, our rootedness in him and in heaven, in that sort of other realm in which that's where this flows out of. That's where what the church is called to be comes out of. It's almost like that, that our roots have sunk into the place where God is, and that's why we're evidentially able to sort of show the world a different way. We're able to make something else because we've been rooted so deeply into the life of God, to the roots in heaven, that we belong in the world in a different way. This is the Christian challenge that many of us are f familiar with, to be in the world but not of the world. Um, we, we try to figure that out in many different ways, but I think this image of, of that we are rooted now in what God has done and this new future that God's going to bring to earth, we see in a glimpse in the resurrection and we'll see in fullness someday that we live there now. And what we do in the present is we embody, as this plant does, a sign of that. And it's one of my favorite sort of images for the church is that the church, the people called out by Jesus, the ones he prays for, are meant to be a sign in that way. I, I sometimes talk about it as a protest against the dysfunction of the world is what we're called to be. So there's times in church history, kind of now, where we think that we're called to make the world a better place. And I think we should do what we can to make the world a better place. But I think when we think about what we're really called to do, we're called to embody the thing that the world can't seem to receive yet, to be a better place, to model a better place, to point as a sign to that better place, to, to have our roots shaped in such a way that that becomes part of who we are. And so this phrase, this Greek phrase, which there, um, hagiago, which means to sanctify, to make holy, becomes the, one of the most important parts of this passage. And, and I think we'll sort of end here. Um, I may have one more story, but, but end here is that, is that we are to be sanctified in truth. Be sanctified by what God has done, to be made holy by God, what God has done. And we all, uh, we've all heard probably, what does holy mean? To be set apart. Um, and then only like five people ever go out of a hundred. But for what? <laughs> uh, we know we're supposed to be set apart, but we never ask, for what reason are we to be set apart? And what Jesus says in this passage is that, that first they're supposed to be set apart in truth, which is a word that doesn't trade well, I think, in the world sometimes, that we believe this is the truth. You'll hear Christians, I hope none here, um, who say things like, I believe Jesus is the Lord of the earth, but hey, that's just my opinion which kind of defeats the, the believe Jesus is the Lord of the earth. Um, you, you, it can't really be a matter of opinion. And to be sanctified in truth, I think, means for us to have lives of integrity that believe these things, to be witnesses to these things. Or if we think about the resurrection, which is coming up for us in two weeks, the idea that, that this dead one is one we dine with now, one we meet with now. 
that he comes to us and his absence is still present to us. To be sanctified in truth as Jesus is sanctified and sanctifies himself for his disciples is to be made holy in a way that gives witness to what he's trying to tell us. So, essentially, this sermon has been a long extended argument, and I think this series, in some ways, from at least Lent on, has been a long extended argument to say, church, we need to be the sign and the witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. We're called to be the sign and the witness to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Christ prays for us to be the sign and witness in the world of what God has done in Jesus Christ. And His Spirit comes and empowers us in that mission. This is what we're called to do. And it's the world that he says hates them for this. The last thing I wanted to end with, and this is actually the end, so I said that once, and I did mean, I did say there'd be maybe one more story, um, is this Cardinal Sarah is a, is a man, his name, last name is Sarah. He's from French New Guinea, or French Guinea, uh, Africa. He recently read an interview with him, and he views his mission sort of as an African to warn the West about where they're going. And he says, the West refuses to receive and will accept only what it constructs for itself. He says, transhumanism, which is um, not transgenderism, maybe connected, but transhumanism is this idea that technology and all the things that we can do and invent will improve humanity so much so that we will achieve some sort of kind of eternal life outside of God. Let's say that's a good definition for transhumanism. Transhumanism is the ultimate meaning of this movement. Because it is a gift from God, human nature itself becomes unbearable for Western man. This revolt is spiritual at root. It is the revolt of Satan against the gift of grace. John 17, that they would be protected from the evil one is what he says. Fundamentally, I believe the Western man refuses to be saved by God's mercy. He refuses to receive salvation, wanting to build it for himself. The fundamental values promoted by the world are based on a rejection of God that I compare with the rich young man in the gospel. God has looked upon the West and loved it because it has done wonderful things. He invited it to go further, but the West turned back. It preferred the kind of riches it can only provide itself. Cardinal Sarah sees as a man from Africa looking at what we live in here in America and Europe is a world in which it's trying to secure its own future, to make its own way. And so what does it mean for Christians to know and live in this way? There's a line that I use often in conversations with people is that the next great rebellion and revolution will be between those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines, which is Wendell Berry. Those who decide to live sort of as like the transhumanist movement will provide me a fullness and an avatar for myself that I will live on forever. And those who decide to live as creatures of a gracious God, who accept that life is mercy and gift. But Cardinal Sarah is not depressed, and this is what I want to end with for the church to be the church. We should not imagine a special program that could provide a remedy for the current multifaceted crisis. We have to simply live our faith completely and radically. The Christian virtues are the faith blossoming in all the human faculties. They mark the way for a happy life and harmony with God, eternal life. We must create places where they can flourish.
I pull on Christians to open oases of freedom in the midst of the desert created by rampant profiteering, a world where everything is for sale. We must create places where the air is breathable or simply where the Christian life is possible. Our communities must put God in the center. Amidst the avalanches of lies, we must be able to find the places where the truth is not only explained but experienced. In a world, we must live the gospel, not merely thinking about it as a utopia, but living it in a concrete way. The faith is like a fire, but it has to be burning in order to be burning to be transmitted to others. Watch over this sacred fire. Let it be warmth in the heart of this winter of the West. If God is for us, who is against us? In the disaster, confusion, and darkness of our world, we find that the light shines in darkness. And he who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray with the prayer that Jesus prays for us. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may be glorified in you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with glory I had before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the 